The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. I want to let you guys know, so this is March 31st, and we're capping off our Marriage March campaign with uh, the second half of Ephesians 5, which is pretty prolific teaching on marriage. So we want to let you know that we have been doing uh, social media posts all month long. We've worked hard on those. We've prayed about those, and we think they're helpful. We don't know if everybody's seen them. We just want you to know those are out there. So that's Facebook. Love City Church has a Facebook. We have an Instagram, YouTube. The tubes, yeah, so um, we've got lots of content out there, and we did it all for the month of March, and it was all focused on encouraging folks who are experiencing the privilege of being in covenant marriage. So if you haven't had a chance to see that, go check it out. And just in general, if you want to stay connected to what we're doing, see uh, what it is we're doing and putting out throughout the week, it'd probably be a good idea to just go check those social media platforms Uh, once a week or once every two weeks because the algorithms decide what to show you based on what you do in terms of traffic. So if you haven't seen stuff from us in a while, it may be that you've been watching too many fail videos and uh, they're just showing you that instead of good gospel-centered content from Love City Church. So there you go, right? All right. Praise the Lord. Go check that out. Please turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start tonight in verse 22. Uh, So here's what we're doing. We're continuing... This week, in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians, this series is called Death to Division, and uh, the title summarizes this major theme uh, that we have of this pastoral letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Sin created a wall between us and God, and it also separates us from one another. But Jesus came and he destroyed that wall through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and triumphant resurrection from the grave. Now, this title also happens to summarize well what we need in our marriages because sin has the same separating and dividing effect upon them. The verses this week contain some of the most famous teaching on marriage in all of history, but they are also some of the most ignored teaching on marriage in all of history. We, as humans, we have this terrible tendency to think that what we need to move forward and grow is some new information or inspiration when more often than not, what we need is to apply what we already know. In some ways, it's like having a flower garden and noticing your flowers are wilting. Okay, Everybody knows that plants need water to thrive. But instead of watering them first to see if that helps, you spend days researching what new fertilizers are out on the market that you could use to revive them. And so you spend tons of money and you buy the fertilizer, you, you rush out, you spread it around the flowers, and much to your dismay, they look even worse the next day. And some people at this point, they get angry and they decide the flowers are just bad and they rip them all up and destroy the garden. Some people get discouraged and decide there's no hope and they're just going to have to live now with dead flowers. But my friends, can I suggest another option? There's another way. Can we try going back to the basics and just sprinkle some water on them and maybe see what happens? Amen. These verses we're going to study tonight, these verses are to marriage 
what water is to a flower garden. Having a gospel-centered, God-honoring, and joy-filled marriage in the midst of our broken world can be very hard, but it is not as complicated as we oftentimes make it out to be. Now, I know that what I'm about to say might be controversial, and there may be people who disagree, but I believe with all my heart that if these verses that we're going to study tonight, if they are believed and obeyed, that absolutely any problem in any covenant marriage between two followers of Jesus can be resolved. Now, I want to just give a few words to those who are not married as we study these verses that focus on covenant marriage. If you're tempted to feel indifferent towards these scriptures or left out as we are studying these scriptures, please keep these few things in mind. First of all, if you are not married now, you may be someday, and the time to learn God's wisdom on the subject is not after you have already entered into a marriage covenant. Two, this teaching may save you from entering into a covenant either unadvised or ill-advised. Three, we do not believe the farce that God can only use someone exactly like you to encourage or help you walk with Jesus. So even if you're somebody who's called by God to remain unmarried for life, you knowing God's heart on the subject can equip you to speak the truth in love to someone who is married. Four, the whole model given here for Christian marriage is built upon Jesus and his relationship with the church. And so there is applicable truth for every person no matter what their relational status as we study this. And lastly, we believe all scripture is profitable and helpful for every person, even if they are not able to understand immediately how or why. Amen. Okay, so all that kept in mind, let's read Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay. There is a lot of misunderstanding around these verses, so I'm going to clear it up for us and and try to make it real simple. Uh, We need to look at verse 25 to really understand properly verses 22 through 24. So 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay? Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. So how did Jesus love the church? He died for her, right? Jesus loved the church by dying for her. So, wives, hear me. All these scriptures are asking you to do is help your husband die, right? You can get on board with that, can't you? What is the big hang-up? Okay, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. 
That would fix a lot. <laughs> I wish we could stop there. It's, it's, it's more complicated than that. Not as complicated as we make it, but more complicated than that. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm only kind of kidding. That's really part of the point we're going to make here, but we, we need to orient ourselves a little bit here because <clears throat> the wheel of this whole teaching here on marriage, it, it's, it's spinning on the axle of verses 28 through 31. So let's look at those, and what I'm saying to you is everything we're going to talk about here, it, 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 it's predicated upon, it's built upon this idea we're going to see in verses 28 through 31. So it says, so husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what, what is it saying there? That it, it keys into that Old Testament, that Genesis reference, the two shall become one flesh. Husband and wife are one. Okay, And everything else we're going to talk about is really, it's, it's built upon that idea. That's a very important idea. And we don't totally understand all it means. And we're going to talk a lot about it and work with it a lot, and we're still not going to know everything it means by the end of this. But we're going to hopefully know better. Husband and wife are one. Part of what shows is that verse 28, it's interesting. It says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Most of the time people read that and they think, husbands ought to love their wives as if their wife were their own body. But that, that word as there, it's saying love your wife like you love yourself because they are your own body. So he's not, he's not just saying an analogy of we'll act like this is the case. He's saying this is the case. One flesh. You are one, united in, in a very real way through the covenant of marriage. The unity between husband and wife is so deep that Paul calls it a mystery in verse 32 and he compares it to the connection that Christ has with the church. And so we, we just keep getting deeper, and we, we just keep probably getting farther and farther you know, above our pay grade in terms of being able to understand this. But we've been given enough, I think, to come away with some helpful understanding. So when we're talking about wives being subject to your own husbands, basically I'm, I'm working on verses 22 and 24 as we get started here. We also need to see 22 and 24 flow out of verse 21. In most Bibles, there's a break there with some kind of heading. I know there is in mine. But we, we saw verse 21 last week, but let's just read it again to understand what Paul's flow of thought is here. Verse 21, he says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Then what's the next verse? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. La da 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 right? So, he, this idea of wives being subject to their husbands, it flows straight out of him saying, all of you be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so this idea of submission is on his mind, and we need to understand what that looks like in context of everything that's said, okay? So basically, he's really when he says, wives be subject to your husbands, he's really just talking about a special application of this broad principle he already laid out, because he just told everybody, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, and what does that look like? Well, that looks like considering other people more important than ourselves, laying down our preferences for the sake of others. It all ties back to all of last week's sermon was about the fact that all the conduct Paul's pushing us towards and much of what he's going to talk about here in marriage, it all is still flowing out of the example of Jesus and what he's done. And so that's where this is coming from. So because of verse 21 and because of the way that all these verses lay out this relationship between husbands and wives, we know that 
every single doofus who has ever used these verses to try to rule over his wife like a tyrant is in grievous sin. Partially because he's slandering the very character of Christ through his actions. Jesus doesn't lead like a demanding tyrant. Jesus leads by serving. And that changes the whole paradigm of how we see these things. And that, that really could tamp out some of the fires that these verses tend to cause because of misunderstanding. Now, let's keep pushing. This is, we don't just see this here. We've seen, we see other apostles right on the subject. 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And most of you are sitting there thinking, I thought he was trying to defuse the bomb. <laughs> he just read another bomb, right? Because that said women are weaker. Hold on, what do we got? <clears throat> okay. Hold on. Now, I know I, I've covered this before, and I know that I've, anytime I talk about this verse, you'll notice that I look up because I don't want to make eye contact with anybody in here. <laughs> but I know for a fact if I had to bet money on it, that there's, there's a few couples in here that if there was a street fight, the wives would beat the husbands up, okay? I already know that, for sure, okay? But, <laughs> so this is not, <laughs> Peter's not covering every possible, you know, uh, situation out there, but what he is talking about when he says living with her in an understanding way because she's weaker. He's talking about the biologically normative stereotype that men are physically stronger than women, and so that should not be used against them. Okay? He goes on to say, if it is, your prayers will be hindered. And really what he's saying is, men, if you use the physical strength that you have to be domineering or overbearing or abusive to women, your prayers are going to be hindered. Translation, you're going to have a problem with God. God's going to have a problem with you. And I can totally understand that as a daddy of a little girl. Um, you know, I'm assuming at some point there's going to be a guy that's going to want to come along and marry her. And if he has very solid doctrine and a plan and can prove himself worthy, which is going to be very difficult, I may allow him to marry her. But if the word ever comes to me that his hands are upon her, I... God help him. So I understand as a dad what God's saying here, right? You know, and God may help him by making sure that I don't do something wrathful, but, you know, maybe in that situation God would allow me to be how he dispenses justice. I don't know. <laughs> you guys don't think so? <sighs> the Old Testament's in there too. I mean, I'm just... I'm just saying. <clears throat> yeah, so really, I didn't, even go, I didn't even go there for that. Here's what I went there for. I read that verse to you so that you would hear this language. Fellow heir of the grace of Christ. So you would see that different roles in marriage do not equal inequality from God's view. I know this is tough for us. It's really hard for us to grasp this idea that wives being called to submit to their husband's leadership does not make them inferior. But when you understand that the high bar of unity for all Christians, and so definitely for married couples, the high bar of unity is the example set between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It may still be a little fuzzy for us as we try to like comprehend that, but at least we have an example. And why do I say that? Well, I say that because in John 17, Jesus prayed 
God, may their unity be like the unity we have between us. May they be unified, talking about all of us that would follow Jesus the way you and I are. And so if that's, if that's the standard for all of us that are of the household of faith, then surely that standard applies for those who are married to one another. You understand what I'm saying? And so why does that matter? Well, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and yet they are one in essence and nature. Jesus is not less God than God the Father. However, they have different roles within the Trinitarian Godhead. None of them is threatened by the role of the other. All of them are secure in knowing that they are unified in their vision and purpose. And so, though it seems very difficult for us to grasp, this is possible. God himself has done it, and he calls us to seek to do the same. Uh, As with anything that we really understand what the call of God looks like, uh, we begin to understand this is, this is going to be really hard. It may not be that complicated, but we are really going to need God's help to do it. We're going to need the Holy Spirit's help to relate to one another in healthy ways as spouses. When a husband and wife join, are joined in covenant marriage and they truly see themselves as one, it removes the issue of superiority and inferiority. That's why I told you that all of this teaching, it hinges upon those four verses that are really driving home the point. Two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, right? The, the level of unity, the union that happens in marriage, God sees two people becoming one. That's his view on it. Now, that may not, that may not represent how you feel about it, your own personal experience. I understand that that's possible and there may be big disconnects. I'm just at least laying the table out here of what God says he sees and what, how he thinks about covenant marriage between two people. That they're one. So if you're one, there's not a superior and an inferior. Okay? But there is mutual submission and there can be roles within that oneness just like there is inside the Godhead. You with me? I know we touched the Trinity and I said things wouldn't be complicated, but I don't think, I don't think that's that hard for us to grasp or see the connection there. So what I'm hoping is, at this stage, we aren't hung up on the word submission. Um, I hope we are past the the foolishness of of discounting what is said here as some ancient, culturally-based instruction that doesn't apply to us today because we are so enlightened, right? That's how some people have dealt with this. Uh, Take a look around today. If you think we're doing better (laughs) than any other time period, I, I don't know what you're looking at. Um, we need help. We need God's help in a lot of ways. But in, in trying to <clears throat> kind of practically illustrate what this submission idea looks like and what I think we need to get out of that and understand, um, I, I thought of a way to illustrate that. So I need a brave husband and wife to come up here. This is awkward, isn't it? I'll sit here all day. Thank you. Jake and Jen, get up here. Give them a hand because the rest of you are terrible. Thank you. You guys are very likely real Christians, man. I love you. Yeah. Hey, man. I'm just going to greet you, hug you since you came up here. The rest of these people didn't care. They were going to leave me up here by myself. Yeah, I see you need help, but nothing we can do about it. Okay. 
All right. So here's what I want to do. I want you to stand over there. Jake, I would like you to just stand right there at the end of that, that table right there and face me. Okay? So the first thing we're going to do, I'm going to represent all the forces of darkness, the, the difficulty of a sin-filled world, and what you're going to do is the, the mission that God has given you, your purpose, the vision that you have for your life, and the mission that Jesus has called you to is to get from where you are to over there. Okay? And I'm going to be the forces of darkness, everything Satan, sin is going to throw at you, the brokenness of this world. And so you're going to try to get over there, but I'm going to try to oppose you. Okay? Now, this is an illustration, so don't try to bowl me over because I'll put some real-life judo on you in front of all these people. Okay? <laughs> all right? I'm not going to make it that hard on you, but we're going to illustrate for these folks, okay? So you try to do the mission Jesus has for you. You Go ahead, and I'm going to try to stop you. Get over there. You can go harder than that. I'm not, I'm not a delicate flower. Come on. How's your knee? Is your knee okay? I don't want to pop your knee out right it's pretty, here, man. It's pretty good. You got, good? Got okay. Five. All right. Okay. All right. He did it, but there was some resistance, right? That was, to some degree, difficult. Say it was at least to some degree difficult. It was. Okay, thank you. Now, now, as his wife, there's a couple postures you can take, Jen, as he tries to fulfill the mission that Jesus has called him to. That would have been good, wouldn't it? No, so I've got a chain here. I'm going to give you this end. I don't know how much of it will be. It's pretty heavy. You may, you may have to shorten up on it. And I've got a crinkle in it, so that's not cool. I think somebody would be better prepared than this. It wasn't like this when I put it in that bag. Okay, there we go. All right, I need this to go around you. This isn't weird. <laughs> All right. I'm going to spin it like that. Now, I want you to try to do the mission that Jesus has called you to. Jen, I want you to... Choke up on that chain. Here you go. About right like that. Actually, that'll be good. You can grab that right there. Now, I want you to help me make it hard on him. Okay? Go. Come on, man. I, want, I don't think you're going to do it this time. Give me everything you got. Go ahead. You got him? Why aren't you going anywhere, brother? She's pretty strong. You are too. It's too late, man. <laughs> I thought we were brothers, man. All right. I try to make sure okay. you protect yourself. All right. That's good. Let me get you free of this. You did good. She plays soccer. She probably, she probably, that was real. That was probably real. Okay. Now, so that's one posture you could take. The next posture you could take would be Jake standing in the same place. Jen, I want you to get behind him and put your hands on his back. And I want you to help him get past all the difficulties of life and accomplish the, the mission that Jesus has called you to, okay? And I'm going to, I got two of you now, so I'm going to give it something, okay? Ready? Go. Get over there. Gosh, she's strong. Okay. Thank you, guys. Give them a hand. Here's what I'm trying to teach you with that, ladies. Submission 
doesn't mean you're inferior. It means that you're joining in on the same mission. And you're embracing the fact that God has placed the role and responsibility of leadership on husbands. God said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone in the garden. He needed help. And a man who is meant for a mission that is going to require the help of a godly wife, he won't accomplish it without her. It's hard enough trying to battle Satan's sin, darkness in the world, everything that comes at us. And when we're working together, you saw what happened. But oftentimes what Satan wants is an adversarial position and culture within the marriage where you're actually hindering one another from accomplishing what Jesus has called you to do. And that's real frustrating. Not only for us, but I would say for the Lord who gave us one another to do the exact opposite. A plane's purpose is to fly. But let me ask you this. What's more important, the steering mechanism or the wings? The plane's not going anywhere without both, right? You're not getting anywhere without both. You take away either one, you've got a disaster. We're in this together. So part of what that means is, back to those of you who are not married, men, when you're looking for a wife, maybe focus more on a missional mindset than her measurements. And ladies, when you're looking for a husband, pay attention to his mission more than his measurements. Just a little extra bonus wise counsel in there in the middle of the marriage teaching from Ephesians 5. Amen. So, ladies, I'm hoping you're asking, wives, I'm hoping you're asking, what does it look like practically to join in pushing for God's glory? Because I showed you, I think most of you can probably, with your imagination, uh, you can imagine how other people have probably been in that position where they were hindering their husband, because you'd have to imagine somebody else's situation, because it's never been you, of course. So I think you could fill in the blank on that, but I'm, what I want to help you understand is what does it look like practically for you to get behind and push and help and be a part as God's called you to, to do? What does that look like? Well, I'll give you a few things. The first is look for reasons to respect him instead of the opposite. The enemy wants you focused on all the places he's not like Jesus and he's imperfect and he's falling short of doing everything that God wants him to do and that you wish he would do and, you know, fill in the blank, right? Part of how you can get behind and push and you can properly fulfill your equal role in accomplishing God's mission for your family is to actively look for reasons to respect your husband as opposed to reasons to disrespect him. And that's going to be, really, that just gets in line with cultivating an overall culture of gratitude in your own heart and mind, but in your marriage as well, that's really important. Uh, I think it's really wise for every person that's married to have a running list in their head of all the reasons that they're thankful for their spouse, so that every single time some relational tension point pops up, whether the forces of darkness are involved or not, let's be honest, Satan and his demons don't need to be involved in many of the reasons the stupid reasons we get at each other in our marriages. Can you say amen to that and tell the truth? Okay, sometimes it's just you. <laughs> sometimes it's just me and our old ignorant self just acting in the flesh, right? But when I am tempted to begin to be upset or frustrated with my wife Natalie or begin to run over my mind something I wish she would do different or better based on my perception or whatever it is, what's, what's really helpful, I think what would be helpful for anybody is to have a running list, 10, 12, 15 things, reasons why I'm thankful for her. 
Because I can start running that list and it just pounds those lies down into dust that are trying to grip and begin to control my thinking. And here's the thing, a lot of this is, it, it happens in, in that battlefield, that battlefront of the mind, right? It's, it's what we spend time thinking about. If you spend time thinking about all the reasons your spouse frustrates you, well, no wonder you're screaming about the ketchup bottle not getting closed properly. Because that's, I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's not really the issue. That just struck a nerve. And then every, and everyone else in the house is left like, wow, why, why did mom just lose her mind about the ketchup bottle? Like, it's just ketchup, right? You know? And you don't, you feel terrible after that happens, right? And this, maybe this isn't true for everybody. Um, I know I have made bigger deals out of things than they ever should have been because I was upset about other stuff that I didn't deal with, and that's just a, a sinful snowball that is not helpful. So, But if you're actively, as a wife, looking for reasons to respect your husband, and you'll also, if you'll be willing to vocalize those, you, you will get a, a lot more out of him. This is a universal truth. You'll get a lot more out of him by voicing the reasons that you can respect him than you will by consistently and constantly repeating the reasons you don't. That's just the truth. I'm not saying difficult truths never need to be said. They absolutely do and should, and that's a part of what a loving uh, relationship between husband and wife looks like, but I'm talking about proportions. I'm talking about what's going on in your heart, because that'll translate no matter what you say. It comes through, right? Ursula told Ariel in uh, Little Mermaid, it's about body language. You know what I mean? Oh, we don't watch Disney movies. We only watch Christian movies. Okay. Like you guys don't know the Ursula <laughs> reference. Whatever. All right, so look for reasons to respect him instead of the opposite. The second thing I'm going to give you is speak to the man of God in him when he does need to be checked. So I'm not saying to you, let's, let's just treat Let's just treat husbands like delicate flowers that can't have a harsh word spoken to them or uh, can't, can't be checked. But when you do bring something to the table, speak to the man of God in him when he needs to be checked. And, and the best example I can think of this from the scriptures is in uh, 1 Samuel 25. And it's kind of a weird Old Testament deal in terms of, so it doesn't, the situation isn't a, a great translation except for the way that Abigail talks to David. So here's what happens. Abigail is married to a guy that is a total fool, and basically David at this point is on the run from Saul, and he's got like 400 guys with him that are loyal to him, and eh, it might be 600, I think it's 600, like 600 guys that are loyal to him, and they're basically riding around, and what they're doing is they're providing protection for people that are like herding sheep or whatever, and the custom of the time was if one of these bands of warriors kept your farmers and your sheep protected when marauders could have came and stole a bunch of your flocks, it was just generally understood you would throw the crew a few sheep or whatever to feed their guys or just say thank you or whatever. So David's guys provide protection for this guy's sheep, and then he sends some messengers like, hey, you know, can, can we get paid for this service? And uh, it wasn't extortion. I mean, everybody else would have understand what was supposed to happen here, but this guy was like, who is David? Who is Jesse? He starts talking, you know, ripping off at the mouth and so the guys leave, they go back and tell David what happened, and David said, everyone put your swords on. And they were about to roll in and just lay waste to everything. Now, one of the servants that overheard this was smart enough to say something to Abigail, who had some sense about her, and she loads up some uh, beasts with 
a bunch of stuff to say thank you to David, and she starts riding in the direction that he'll be coming. The Bible says when Abigail saw David, she got down off of uh, the beast she was riding. She got down low, bowed before him. And, and David, David is sinful right now. David is in sin. What he's doing is wrong. He's, he wants blood on the end of his sword because this guy disrespected him. Okay, That's basically where he's at. But what the whole point of, why, why am I saying this? I'm, I'm, talking, I'm telling wives to t- speak to the man of God and their husbands when they want to bring. So she's coming to s- say to him, hey, you shouldn't do what you're about to do. This is sinful. But the way she does it, ladies, she doesn't jump off the beast and start wagging her head around and Z-snapping at him. Because if she had, I guarantee you, she would have been a headless corpse laying in the road as he went and burned and killed everything else. Because that's where he was at. He was, he was wrong. But I'm just telling you, it is what it is, right? What she did instead is she bowed low and she started speaking to the man of God. And she started bringing up things from the past, not even directly, just by inference. She mentioned that because God's been so good to you that uh, God, anybody that rises up against you, God's going God's to gonna, uh, sling them like, basically she references the sling that he uses to bring down Goliath. And what she's doing there is she's showing him, hey man, how, how is a guy that God has used like that to take down the giant and save Israel, how is he going to act like you're acting right now? And she goes on to speak to what God has promised he's going to do. When you sit upon the throne, anybody that rises up against you, God's going to take care of that too. And so she, what she does is she doesn't get off and, and, and just start ripping off at the mouth and belittling him because he's being ignorant right then, which he is, but she has this really sweet wisdom about her that she speaks to the man of God in him, and, bring, and that conviction grabs him, and he stops what he's doing. So you've got to know something about your husband, know something, have some reasons that you believe God has used your husband and will use your husband. You've got to have some vision for that uh, to be able to speak like that. Now, uh, Abigail's husband ends up dying like 10 days later, and her and David end up getting married. Again, I told you it's a weird Old Testament story, and I can't account for all that. But all I'm telling you is the way Abigail came at David was real smart. And I think every wife that wants, cares about how to engage their husband when they want to bring some kind of check in place, something that needs to be said, there's a lot of wisdom in the way she did that. And she got, she got the results she was looking for. Um, so I guess that kind of speaks for itself. The last thing I would say, the third thing I would say uh, in, to help get behind and, and be pushing in the same direction for the mission that God has called your family to, uh, I, would, I would encourage you to ask your husband how that would look. How can you help him? How can you encourage him? How can you join him in the mission that God has laid out for your family. And, and listen, I know there's all kinds of situations in here. There may be some of you are like, if I asked my husband what our mission was, I would get a blank stare. I realize that it's, it's all over the board in here, but by having that conversation, you could, be, you could start that by bringing up the fact that we should have a mission that is tied to the gospel as a family. Water the flowers wherever they're at. man. You see what I'm saying? Um, but there may be some of you that you just haven't communicated what the mission is. Or maybe um, the husband's done a bad job letting his wife into that. Or maybe he didn't think she wanted to help. 
Maybe he just thought she was annoyed with him, right? I could I'd give a thousand different scenarios right now, but the bottom line is there's some real wisdom, wives, and you come to your husband and saying, I want to, I don't want to be a hindrance to you accomplishing what it is Jesus made you to do. Because what Jesus made you to do is now what I'm supposed to be doing because we're one. So how, how can I help you? And there may be some adversarial issues. There may be some tension that's built up that's going to have to be dealt with before a conversation like that can happen. I get that. So start watering. Amen. All right, that brings us to verses 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands, I said earlier that godly marriages may be hard, but they aren't that complicated. The path Jesus took in order to love us wasn't easy, but he went first and showed us where we can walk, so following after him is not as complicated as we sometimes make it. So what does this say? This says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. If you just applied that before you interact with your wife, husbands, Somebody, as a, I think, I don't know if they were being funny or sweet or both, but somebody put a WWJD bracelet up here from what I said last week. But it's really the same principle, isn't it? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus say this to my wife? How would Jesus go into this situation? Guns a-blazing, feeling self-righteous? Probably not. Probably humble and looking for a resolution that leads to God's glory. Right? Right. So how did Jesus love his church? How did he love us? Again, there's a hundred different things we could say. I'm going to give you a few practical examples. First thing I'm going to say is, he went first. Jesus went first. Now, I want to say this. I'm about to ride the husbands, ladies, so I'm done with you, but there's one more thing i got to say before I go into this. If, if wives wait to respect their husbands until their husbands are perfect at loving them like Jesus loves the church, then they're never going to obey God's command to joyfully submit to their husband's leadership, okay? So you can't think that what I have said here or what the scriptures are saying is, or what I'm about to say, because I'm about to lay going first on the husbands pretty hard, <laughs> but I don't want you to hear in that, that that means if I notice that he is imperfectly doing his job, then I get to hit neutral because this accountability that you have to fulfill your role within your marriage, there is an accountability to your husband, but there's a higher accountability to Christ. And so if, if he's not doing a perfect job in the same way that the husband's, well, we'll get to that. You understand what I'm saying? All right. There is no question, however, so that's true what I just said. There is no question when it comes to who is supposed to go first when we're talking about humbly loving and serving and preferring their spouse above themselves. That is not a question. Let me read you this. What are we talking about? We're talking about husbands loving your wives just as Christ loved the church. This is Philippians 2, starting in verse 2. 
Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Again, these are general instructions to the body of Christ as a whole. As if they could get any more intense, if they could, then that, that would definitely apply to the one union, one flesh covenant of a marriage, okay? So be united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church by getting low, real low. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant. The highest went the lowest. And so you, husband, have no excuse. Get low. If I'm sitting across from two Christians whose marriage is struggling because both are hurt, they're angry, they're bitter, or all of the above, I am always without question going to lay the responsibility of humble repentance and seeking reconciliation upon the husband first. That is biblical and that is right. 100%. My question to you, maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're like, well, what if she's more wrong than him? Okay, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Who made the first move when it came to reconciling sinful humanity to God? Was it us or Jesus? Jesus. And husbands are supposed to love their wives like what? Like Christ loved the church, right? Okay. Jesus loved us first by going first. He got low. He got humble. And he paid the price for relationship to be restored. He also continually responds to our rejection by loving us anyways and reaching out to us with mercy. This is the posture husbands need to take if they're going to seek to obey this supreme command to them in the way they conduct themselves towards their wives. This is what loving our wives like Christ loves the church looks like. Again, I understand this, what I'm saying is hard. What I'm trying to say to you is it's not that complicated. Jesus already showed us what to do. The question is, will we do it? The question really is, will we throw ourselves at his feet and plead for his help to help us do it? Because if we rely on ourselves, we already know that answer. The second way that Jesus loves us well, that I'm going to share with you, is that he never gives up on us. Revelation 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. This means that before Jesus ever participated in making us, he knew he would die to save us. He was all in from the beginning, and he will never waver in his commitment to us. Brothers, part of loving our wives as Christ loves the church is providing her the security to know that we are not going to run from marital difficulty like scared little boys, but we are going to stand as men of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, 
to face down any storm or enemy that may come against our covenant. Here's part of the mental side of what I'm talking about. James 1, 5 through 8 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We should communicate this stability and this commitment that we have to not be the double-minded man through what we say and what we don't say. We should look for ways to communicate to our wives that we are with them and we are for them no matter what, actively. But there's also no excuse in any circumstance for sowing seeds of doubt in them that we're not going to do that with what we do and what we say. And you can say, well, you know, I just got really mad or whatever. You, you, you can make up whatever excuse you want to, but here's what I'm saying to you. If you want to cultivate a culture of trust in your marriage and you want to water and bless and help your wife to love you and trust you and be able to feel safe getting behind you and helping you, you need to be single-minded. Jesus was single-minded before the foundations of the world about what he was going to do with us. Jesus loved us all the way. Never questioned what he was going to do. It's real quiet in here. I think you're thinking about it. This is real deal, man. We need to watch what comes out of our mouths. Now, here's the thing. If you have blown that already... <laughs> There's always an opportunity to come and repent. Repent to your wife. Repent to God. Don't leave it unsaid. Don't leave it undealt with. That's a conversation that needs to be had. Ask God to show you the words and actions that will communicate your steadfast commitment to your bride. Let me say that again. Ask God to show you the words and actions that will communicate your steadfast commitment to your bride. And this part should be obvious, but I just want to be sure, guys, ask God to show you, then say the words and do the things that will communicate stability and trust and commitment, okay? Don't just leave them rattling around in your head. Never sow seeds of doubt through actions or words, leaving room for her to wonder if she can count on you to stand with her through whatever difficulty may come, either from outside threats or from internal struggles. I'm teaching you how to love your wives like Christ loved the church. Remember what we're doing? And like I said, if you've already failed in this way, then repent and ask for her forgiveness. I, I don't care how long ago it was. If you have not repented to her and to God, then acknowledge how foolish that was and leave no room for her to wonder where you stand. When we leave room, even in our minds, for the possibility of not fulfilling the covenant we made to our wives and to God... Precious time and energy can be wasted imagining what it would be like to abandon our duty as a husband instead of using that time and energy towards working on restoration. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes, sometimes husbands in their mind, they're, 
They're wasting hours during their day imagining what it would be like if they did bail. All of that is wasted time and imagination and mental energy. That's time they could be praying and asking God for how it is we're going to fix this or how it is I'm going to communicate clearly that that's not what's going to happen. So the call here is, husbands, do not be double-minded because if we are, we can expect to receive nothing from the Lord and our wives will suffer needlessly. The third way Jesus loves us is he nourishes us and cherishes us. That's verse 29. And when it talks about him nourishing us, that's both physically and spiritually. It's speaking of provision, right? So we know that husbands have a responsibility to provide for the needs of their family. That can look a lot of different ways, okay? We're not going to lay out exactly what that means because the Bible doesn't do that. It means that the husband should have a plan and he should be creating some security and stability in his wife's heart and mind that... uh, He's going in a direction, and he's going to make sure that they have what they need physically. And that, that is important, but it is equally important, and sometimes in our culture neglected, that that's happening spiritually, okay? I think most guys think of provision, and, and this is the old stereotype, right? As, as, long, as long as I bring home the bacon, you know, I'm doing the thing. I married you, didn't I? That, that type of stuff, right? That is sad. Um, to say the least. So when Jesus doesn't just provide for us physically as his church, make sure we have what we need, but he's constantly caring about and cultivating and growing in, uh, in us spiritually. And so the, the call here is for us to, if we're going to love our wives like Christ loved the church, is to take an active role, seek to uh, make sure she's provided for physically and spiritually. Uh, the cherishing piece, those words are actually closer than we normally would use them, especially in the Greek. But if, if you go to the dictionary, cherish means to hold dear or to feel or show affection for, okay? And what it means to, to show affection or to communicate that your wife is precious to you, husbands, that's going to look different based on the individual needs of your wife. So in the same way I said to the wives, hey, here's one great way... <laughs> to help show your husband that you believe in him and you're with him, it would be to ask him how to help him. Wives or husbands, uh, ask your wife how (laughs) you can love her well. How can I love you better? How can I do a better job loving you like Christ loved the church? Because that is going to be different based on different stages of life, different personalities. Um, And so... Husbands, be good question askers, right? One of our quotes this last week is that the finest art of communication is not learning how to express your thoughts, it's learning how to draw out the thoughts of another. That's a real deal, man. And some of you husbands are terrible at it. And you need Jesus' help to get better at it. Ask your wife some dang questions. Find out where she's at, what she's thinking, how you can love her better. If If she has no answers, it might be because she just gave up and believed the flowers were just going to be dead forever. So you might have to ask again, a different way. Get creative. But if you love her, you're going to care and keep pressing. I know this is heavy, but it's good for us. Amen. Now, ladies, I told you I was done with you, but we got to circle back just because of what I just hit the guys with. Wives. If he really loved me, I wouldn't have to tell him is a lie from the pit of hell, okay? 
<laughs> okay, seriously, seriously. If, if you can only ever feel loved by a mind reader, you're probably going to need to marry someone that has a demon, okay? Because in Acts, they were casting those out. <laughs> okay, ladies? I love y'all, but don't, don't play that game. Don't do that to him. Especially if he tries. <laughs> like, meet him there, okay? What do you, you don't know? <laughs> no, he doesn't know. <laughs> Promise, that's why he's asking. So rejoice in the asking, okay? I said that funny, but I'm really serious about it. That, that's, that's, a, that's just a weird way to think. Um, we need to communicate. Amen. Okay. Um, that brings us to verse 32. It says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So what does this mean? It means a couple things. Godly, joy-filled, gospel-centered marriages are a kingdom issue. So this is broader than just what's going on in your house or even what's going on in this uh, local expression of the body of Christ. Godly, joy-filled, gospel-centered marriages are a kingdom issue. The world is supposed to see a reflection of the gospel in the way followers of Jesus do marriage. This means that there is a way, there is way more at stake here than your personal happiness. This is not even just about the two of you and what's going on, it's, it's bigger than that. We need to have a vision for that. We need to see that in what God is saying here. I don't believe we can spend too much time thinking or talking about the connection between the covenant that Jesus made possible through laying down his life and the covenant commitment we make to lay down our lives for one another in marriage. We can't think too much about that connection, and we haven't figured it all out yet. If Paul is saying it's a mystery... That means we don't have all the details, but it's important and it's profound. I know that we probably aren't capable of being able to understand how all this ties together like completely on this side of eternity, but the fact that God says it does tie together, it should motivate us to see biblical marriage as one of the most effective ways to preach the gospel to a lost and broken world. And so if you haven't had that vision for your marriage yet, I want to speak life. I know, I, I know there was some heavy stuff, and I was, I was hitting the wives, and, 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 and for some of you, conviction of sin, and you have been pulling on the chain, and so you're dealing with that. That's heavy. I get that. And some of you husbands, you ain't asked your wife a question in six months. I get it. And so you're dealing with that, and the Holy Spirit's dealing with you, and I'm real glad. That needs to be dealt with, okay? But, but also what I'm saying is, let's all have a vision for our marriage and understanding that God wants to use our marriages as a reflection of the beauty of his gospel. This mystery is great, but I'm referring to Christ and the church, right? So he keeps looping it back and forth and saying that part of what God's doing in bringing humans together and putting them in covenant and bringing a man and a woman and, and getting them to lay their life down for one another, that's one of the ways he wants to show how good his gospel is. And how amazing it is that he's made a covenant with us. <clears throat> in, in just speaking along these lines, the, the first time I heard this idea, water came straight up out of my eyes and I couldn't stop it. And, and I, I have a hard time holding it back every time I hear it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you because this, this right here got me. Talking about the connection between the marriage covenant between God's people and the covenant between us in God through Christ. Adam went to sleep, and out of a wound in his side, God made a bride for him. Later, Jesus went to sleep, and out of a wound in his side, God made a bride for him. 
Well, the Bible's fake. It's a bunch of stuff made up. Come on, man. Do you see that? You see that crimson thread from Genesis straight up to the Gospels? Come on now. Nobody make this up. That's beautiful. Mm. Verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What's he doing? Once again, real loud, for anyone who missed it, Paul summarizes this teaching. Right? It's almost as if he began to get lost in the depth of the comparison uh, between the covenant of salvation between God and his children and between husband and wife. It's almost like he was losing himself there, and then he kind of snaps back, and he's like, oh, I'm teaching on marriage. And he lays it out one more time. Gives us the summary of everything he's said here. And like I said, friends, I, I know that everything I'm saying here, it can, it is hard. It does require for sure the help of the Holy Spirit. It's hard, but it, it, I maintain that it's not that complicated. And so we spend so much time chasing our tails, acting like it's complicated, not willing to just grab the water can. And, and I, here's... This is real. You, you may have layer upon layer of hurt and offense in your marriage that makes it seem complicated, but really this base, basic gospel premise of letting the love of Jesus shape our thinking and then applying that salve to all those wounds is the only way to healing. And so I understand that there may be a bunch of things that have happened and there may be a bunch of things that are broken, but the gospel is the answer to each one. And when you think about all the things, it seems like such a tangled mess that you don't even know how to go at it. And I'm saying you, you may just have to take it one at a time and take these gospel lenses and look at it and apply these gospel truths to it and let that healing balm touch those wounds and do what it does. You may need to ask someone to help you see your specific situations through these gospel lenses. That's okay. It may not be that you and your spouse are going to be able to just sit down and figure it out yourself. That's perfectly fine. There's a lot of wisdom and humility in saying, you know what? I believe the gospel can bring healing, but we're having a hard time seeing how. Can you help us see how? However, if we remember the bad news that each one of us are hopeless sinners apart from Christ and the good news that he laid down his life to have us anyways and we apply those truths into every tension point in our marriages, we can water these gardens God has given us instead of tearing them up or settling for dead flowers. That's the hope I want to speak into you today. The gospel can bring restoration and reconciliation, joy and beauty, no matter where your garden stands today. Amen. May we be a people who see marriage the way God sees it. And may we have gospel-centered, God-glorifying, joy-filled marriages for the sake of Christ, our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for these verses. God, thank you for this ancient teaching on marriage. God, we ask you to forgive us for every way that we've ignored it. God, many of us have sought for some greater answer, some deeper revelation. God, many of us have scrambled trying to come up with some other answer. And Lord, ultimately, you're the answer. Marriage is your idea. You are the Lord over every covenant marriage. 
this whole thing belongs to you. And so, God, we submit it to you. And God, I just ask, uh, I ask for supernatural healing in every single marriage of every single family that's a part of Love City Church, God. I ask you to touch, Lord, even those that may just listen to this sermon online, God, I ask you to reach into their marriage by the power of your spirit and help. God, I ask you to send people into others' lives that, that can help them see how the gospel can bring healing to the brokenness. God, I thank you for marriages that, though there's always tension points, are, are healthy and marriages that are pushing for this ultimate goal of seeing you glorified, seeing your gospel preached through the way we love and serve one another. God, I ask you to, I ask you to touch the hearts and minds of, of every person that's thinking through these things as a result of hearing this word. God, I ask that you would help them have uh, realistic lenses to see where they're at because, Lord, as we bring these things up, oftentimes there's a temptation to discouragement, there's a temptation to despair, but God, may we see we, I know you've been faithful in every one of those situations, and I know you're working, God. Even when we're working against you, you're still by your grace and mercy doing what it is you do, putting broken pieces back together. And so, God, may we rejoice in all the work you have done in our marriages, and may we rejoice in the fact that you have the answers we need, that moving forward we can press on knowing that you, no matter what we've done, you can bring healing and wholeness. God, I ask for supernatural love to just blossom between every single married couple that is a part of this church. God, we do understand this is a kingdom issue, and we want to see your gospel go forth as a result of people catching a glimpse of the covenant beauty you've shown us in Christ in the way we love and serve one another. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. Thank you for the opportunity to lay our lives down to serve one another. Thank you, Lord, that we can glorify you and we can cultivate joy for ourselves as we obey you in this. We love you, Lord, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.